0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series in the book of Jonah. So turn to your Bibles to the book of Jonah as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled The Boundless Compassion of God.
1: I've struggled with the title of this two-week series on the book of Jonah, yeah, the book is about the boundless compassion of God, but it's also a book about the judgment of God. And so it seems to me that whenever we stress the compassion of God at the expense of his justice and righteousness, well, we're in danger of turning compassion, as one writer said it, into mere sentimentality. It is mere sentimentality when we only say that God has compassion because he feels deeply moved towards us. That is a sentimental thought, and yet far too often that thought is meaningless because it's not understood against the background of God's righteousness and his glory. Compassion can only be compassion when it means that it's surprising and undeserved, if we think we're getting what we deserve, it's not compassion, it's well, it's something else entirely. And so I've tipped my hand. I've just let you know uh, that the book of Jonah is a book about compassion and surprisingly, it's the story of a prophet who disagrees with God about whether or not the compassion we find in this book is called for. Jonah, as we're going to see, thinks that God is far too lavish in his compassion. And I do wonder as we study Will you agree with Jonah or with God? Well, we're all going to have to decide. Now, before we dig into the background of the book of Jonah, I wish to address what Jesus taught us about Jonah. And here, I'm reading Matthew 12, 38 to 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Notice the two points that Jesus makes taken from the lessons to be learned from Jonah. The first is that Jonah's deliverance from the belly of the great fish is an authenticating sign that what this prophet had to say was a message from God. In a much greater way, Jesus' deliverance from the heart of the earth in death and resurrection, well, it's a much greater sign that his message is true and must be taken with utmost seriousness. But the second lesson that follows from the first is that in Jesus, something far greater than Jonah is here. The point is that the population of Nineveh, upon hearing of the message of impending judgment, immediately repented. And yet the one who is infinitely greater than Jonah, whose sign of authenticity is far superior to Jonah's deliverance from the fish, that this one greater than Jonah has spoken, and in utter brazen rebellion, men have refused to repent. And that means when the final judgment is at hand. All those who heard Jesus preach will need to hear as men of Nineveh rise up and say, look, a far inferior prophet spoke to us, and we pleaded for mercy, and you heard the message of Jesus, and you didn't. What can possibly be the matter with you? And so we need to say at the outset, there's a connection between the ministry of Jonah and the ministry of Jesus. Now, that may seem ever so more surprising as we go through the book of Jonah, since we'll find Jonah to be anything but Christ-like. Rather, we're going to find him most rebellious all the way through to the very end of the book. Indeed, we might wonder about the message he preached. There, as we will find, is no message of grace at all. Instead, we're going to find a prophet who doesn't want the boundless compassion of God. And yet the call to repent and believe is so interwoven in this book of Jonah that once we see it, it will be no surprise at all that the book of Jonah by its very nature is going to lead us to consider the worldwide call of the gospel of Jesus. Okay, let's get down to the details. I know, I know, if you grew up in church and if you attended Sunday school, you most likely remember the story of Jonah as the story of a man who ran away from God resulting in the moral lesson, we shouldn't run away from God the way that Jonah did. Even though that's true, Jonah did run away from the assignment that God gave him, that running from God's calling is not the central point of this book. Everything but everything hinges on our understanding of the assignment that God gave this prophet. And so let's turn to a fascinating narrative or the fascinating story of Jonah. And as we do, let's consider the times in which he lived. We'll find the time in which he lived from 2 Kings 14:23 to 25. And that passage says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he had made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So let's set the stage. Israel had divided into two nations. In the south, she had become known as Judah, with her capital in Jerusalem, ruled over by one of the direct descendants of King David. But in the north, in the nation now known as Israel, things were very different. Three things would always dominate the life of Israel. First, Israel, because of her geographical location, was located right on the northern border with Syria. And during that time of Jonah, Syria in recent history had oppressed Israel. During the reign of a king of Israel named Jehoahaz, who did much evil in the sight of God... And because of a nation that readily followed the evil their king was doing, Second Kings 13 verse 3 says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. And so for two generations of Syrian kings, Israel had suffered greatly. Syria was constantly warring against Israel, and in many cases, Israel fared badly during those wars, losing a great deal of land to the Syrians. But let's keep on reading from our text in 2 Kings, verses 4 and 5. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed him. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Now, the savior that's spoken of here is almost certainly the nation of Assyria. I know, for the modern reader, that does sound a bit confusing. And that's because one nation is called Syria and the other nation is called Assyria. But this distinction will become very significant as we read through Jonah. So maybe it's best to clear the air here. Syria is the nation that's just to the north of Israel. And if you put it in in our terms, it's still in our day, the nation of Syria that's north of Israel. So that part should be relatively simple, especially if you know something about the geography of the Near East. But as Syria, well, uh, think of that as very roughly equivalent to the nation of Iraq today. So, from the book of 2 Kings, we know that the power of Syria was broken over Israel when, when first the king of Israel sought the favor of the Lord, and then God sent the Assyrians to attack the Syrians so that the power of Syria would be broken. Now, just to bring that matter back to the book of Jonah, please understand that the drama in Jonah centers in on God sending the prophet Jonah to the nation of Assyria, Remember, this is what Jonah most definitely did not want to do. Okay, but getting back to the historical background, we find out that Assyria attacked Syria and weakened Syria so much so that Israel was able to reclaim their lost territory back from the military defeats that they had suffered earlier. But then, let's read 2 Kings 13, verse 6. Nevertheless, they, that is Israel, did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. That is, in spite of the fact that God saved Israel from the Syrian menace, a menace that often meant war and the loss of property, death, you know in spite of all of that, Israel did not cease committing a certain sin. Remember, I said that three things dominated the life of the northern kingdom of Israel. The first was her geography located on the border of a very aggressive nation, Syria. But now here's the second thing that dominated their life. It's called idolatry. And it goes way back to the moment when Israel was founded as a nation. You know, sometimes the ground on which a nation or a people are founded becomes the constant. It becomes the very thing from which they never depart, never. That's what happened in Israel. Unlike the people of Judah, the people of Israel were constantly idolatrous. Let's find out why.
0: Every week, In Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, airs a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe, discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join InDoubt on air on the inDoubt.ca website, the InDoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about In Doubt or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.
1: When the great divide first happened, that is, when Israel separated from Judah, electing their own king and refused to be identified with the offspring of David and the hope of the Messiah, Israel's first king, a man named Jeroboam, made a fateful decision. Jeroboam was concerned that when the pilgrimage feasts happened, that is, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, that when the pilgrims from Israel went to Jerusalem, and worshiped in the temple there, that the hearts of the people of Israel would return to the hope of the Messiah and to the promise made to David's descendants. So Jeroboam was concerned that in the end, he'd lose his own kingship. And so King Jeroboam made a fateful decision that that sealed the eternal destiny of, of a great many of his people. He built two calves made of gold, and he set one in the city of Bethel and the other in the city of Dan. And then he told the people that these were the gods that brought them out of Egypt, and that they should worship in Bethel or in Dan, but not in Jerusalem. And then every single king of Israel followed after him, followed the same line of logic. Dynasties would come and go as a new dynasty then massacred all the descendants of the king of the previous dynasty, and they set up a new kingdom, but with each of the nine different dynasties of Israel. Although everything changed, nothing changed. The writers of Scripture say that one thing every king of Israel refused to do is he refused to give up the sins of Jeroboam. Okay, we stated two of three things that dominated the life of Israel. Their geographical location always left them vulnerable to the attack of enemies. Second, they were overwhelmingly idolatrous. And third, each and every king Israel ever had, all 19 of them. From 931 BC until 722 BC, when the Assyrians utterly destroyed them. Yeah, the same Assyrians that we read about in the book of Jonah. And yet all 19 kings of Israel, from their ignoble beginning to their disastrous end, were evil men. All were condemned by God. And that is the sad history of the nation that Jonah was born into. But when did Jonah actually live? Well, interestingly enough, the book of Jonah doesn't give us the date, but as we've already seen, the book of 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25 tells us that he prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II reigned over Israel from the year 793 to 753 BC. Now, that's a very long period of time. He actually reigned for 41 years. The Bible says that Jeroboam II did what was evil in the sight of the Lord that he utterly refused to depart from the sins of Jeroboam the However, God still had compassion on Israel, giving them time to repent. And the time of Jeroboam the was a time of great prosperity. Because of the Assyrian attack on Syria, the power of Syria had been broken, and Jeroboam the got busy. He recovered all the lost land of Israel, and for a time, he even subdued a big chunk of the territory of Syria. And furthermore, he restored the territory of Israel to to the very borders that were enjoyed during the time of King Solomon. I mean, these were great days and the future looked bright. All this to say that Jonah lived in a time when the, the nation was both prosperous, but also carried on in their idolatrous ways. And so the question we might ask is actually quite simple. What was Jonah doing during that time? You know, for example, shortly after Jonah, Amos was prophesying to Israel, and and Amos thoroughly denounced Israel. He said they sold the righteous and the needy for a pair of sandals. And he said that father and son made a practice of having sex with the same woman. He also said that they offered drink offerings to pagan gods in all their houses. Amos said that the Lord was speaking to Israel and that God was roaring like a lion, and he was going to bring judgment against the land so that it would fall and never rise again. It's hard to hear the prophesying of Amos. Indeed, the leaders of the country were conspiring to banish Amos from Israel so that no one ever heard his message again. I mean, who needs that kind of bad news? But that brings us back again to Jonah. Since he lived just before the time of Amos, what was Jonah doing in those days? Well, according to Second Kings 14, during his day... When God saw the affliction of Israel from her former bondage to Syria, well, God had mercy on Israel. And in Jonah's day, when Jeroboam II was restoring Israel, Jonah was prophesying, encouraging Israel. Well, does that mean that Amos was faithful and Jonah was not? Well, no, I don't think so. I think that Jonah was doing what God had called him to do. You know, the word that Jonah preached was a word of comfort and mercy. It was a word of encouragement. Time time when, when God was still giving Israel a season of mercy in which he was to repent. See, the reason the message of Amos was so much more sharp and harsh is because the time of mercy was running out. See, we might think about Paul's words in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul said, "...or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance?" But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, there's a time for words of kindness and forbearance, and there is a time when the time of kindness and forbearance have played themselves out. That's the point I want to make. Before the events of the book of Jonah play themselves out, it seems to me that that Jonah had a ministry of grace— of directing people to God's good favor, of expressing God's mercy so that God's people might yet turn to him. All his life long, he had a ministry of offering the boundless compassion of God. And it's that background that makes the book of Jonah so fascinating, at least from my perspective. See, the book of Jonah opens up with the following words. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Well, Nineveh was the capital of the growing Assyrian empire. It was where current-day Mosul in Iraq is located today. Now again, let's understand the times. In Jonah's time, the Assyrian empire was not in the ascendancy she would later enjoy. The Assyrians during this time period were engaged in conflicts with a number of nations, and those conflicts were hard on them, and they resulted in a weakening of their power. And furthermore, there had been a widespread famine in the region, which led them to wonder if they were being punished. Also, there were internal revolts against the Assyrian Empire, where regional governors operated with a high degree of autonomy and didn't always like what the central government was doing. And so the idea that Assyria would eventually become the dominant empire of the region and that it would eventually destroy the kingdom of Israel, well, those things were not yet known. So the ministry of Jonah came at a time when the Assyrians were on their heels, as we like to say, and it was this power vacuum. The Syrians had been defeated. Now the Assyrians had their own internal problems, this in the sovereignty of God allowed for a time of peace and prosperity and the expansion of Israel. God had arranged these days so that Israel might come to God and repent and receive his grace. And that, I think, would have been Jonah's ministry. But then suddenly his ministry is interrupted. He's called to go out and call out against the evil done in Assyria. And that's the drama. And that's why Jonah wanted nothing to do with that ministry. Now, let's see if we can get ready for what we're going to discover in Jonah. The first thing we're going to discover is that in spite of himself, Jonah will make us reflect on Jesus' ministry, that ministry to bring the gospel of compassion to the needy and the desperately sinful world, to the world of the Gentiles, to the farthest reaches of the earth. And as we read Jonah, we're going to see that God is making a plea to Assyria And in this way, God's making a plea to the entire world. Come to me. Repent. That message leads us to the compassion of Jesus. But let's go back to the place where we started today's study. You know, Jonah is a book that will force us to look at the boundless compassion of our God. This book will make some of us feel uneasy, for we're going to see God's compassion among people who really have no business receiving mercy we will have to ask why it is that Nineveh, the capital of Assyria actually repented and why it is, while all that was going on, that the people of Israel were carrying on in their idolatrous ways. Was it because the Israelites were prospering while the Ninevites were struggling in difficulty? Well, perhaps, but perhaps the answer is a little deeper than that. All in all, we're going to have to reflect on why Jonah leads us to Jesus and the miracle of grace to unworthy people. This will be a study on the boundless compassion of our God.
0: Hi, John. This is going to be a great series, but let me ask you a very general question. You know, the story provides for us an opportunity for reflection. All of us listening would probably say, what's wrong with Jonah? Everyone needs to hear about God but I wonder if we really represent that. Are, are we really different from Jonah?
1: Yeah, I think there are two questions that come to mind. And the first question is, obviously, uh, when we are not concerned about the task of world mission, and when we're not thinking about how we can bring the gospel to the world, and we only care about, you know, what's happening in our local level, I think we reflect the attitude of Jonah. And the second is, you know, there can be within each person a, a kind of a a racist attitude, let me put it that way, in which uh, we we don't think that the need of people who are unlike us is as great as our own need. And so, both of these make us like Jonah. Thanks so
0: much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. (laughs) This month, we celebrate the commitment of our monthly partners with the launching of a new monthly partner initiative, the 1119 Fellowship. Based in Deuteronomy, the 1119 Fellowship is critical to our continued efforts to share the gospel with a new generation and to help teach in a way that can be trusted and that will build a firm foundation for a life in Christ. As of this past July, we celebrate 674 monthly partners, all committed to sustaining and growing the mission of Bible teaching you can trust. In the months ahead, we're asking you to join our monthly partner 1119 Fellowship as we march toward 1,000 participants. Join us this month. Become a part of the 1119 Fellowship. And for more information or to sign up today, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Together, let us ensure that the Word of God is being declared to a
1: new generation.